Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're talking with addiction expert and psychologist, Dr. Nicholas Kaderis, about his best-selling book, Glow Kids, and his newest book, Digital Madness. In these books, Dr. Kaderis takes a deep dive into the harmful effects of screen time on our kids and how social media is driving a mental health crisis among teens and young adults. Dr. Kaderis is considered a leading expert on young people and digital addiction and has developed the most comprehensive treatment protocols to treat this global problem. Look, whether you're a parent of, of little kids or you're just feeling overwhelmed by the toxic nature of social media, Dr. Kaderis will not only help us understand the crisis, but he will offer practical solutions to help us restore our sanity. Join us now for an amazing conversation with Dr. Nicholas Kaderis. Dr. Kaderis, thanks for being with us today on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I was really excited about a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine, Representative Erin Grawl from, from the other coast of Florida, now she's on her way to the Florida Senate, recommended a book to me called Glow Kids, a book that you wrote six years ago. She told me I absolutely had to read it based on a lot of the work we had done in the legislature. I read it. It's incredible. Tell us uh, why you wrote the book and what is a glow kid? <laughs> and, and thanks for that, Chris. And I'm so glad that somebody in your position is reading it because I do think there was such a, well, when I wrote the book six years ago, there was such an under-awareness of the impact of screens and screen time and technology on our kids, on what, what shape and effect was this happening, having on young people. And I think so many of us were, I think the fault lay in the fact that so many of us that were the adults in the room were so smitten by how cool our smartphones were and our modern devices they weren't realizing that little Johnny and Susie were getting impacted pretty significantly. And as a psychologist who was working at that point with a lot of young people, I started clearly seeing the signs of what you, we would qualify as a clinical addiction. And I had a, pretty, a couple of significant examples where that happened in my practice with young people and was shocked that really people weren't all in on, hey, wait a second, what's what's going on here? And so I wrote Glow Kids in an effort to really combine all the peer-reviewed um, literature at the time that was looking at the attentional issues, the mental health, the mood disorders, the depression, uh, the ADHD, the um, anxiety uh, that was happening, and, and how perhaps were those correlating, those spikes, how are they correlating with increased screen time with kids? And so that was, that was the whole impetus behind writing Glow Kids and getting it out there as a resource to parents and to educators and to the society to have the information at their fingertips. You know, I'm sitting there when I'm reading Glow Kids, I'm in bed and I'm literally reading snippets of it to my wife because when we had kids, we've got a, our oldest is a six-year-old, we got two boys. Uh, she said, hey, no screen time, you know, until they're, you know, this age and then just, you know, a little bit of time here with, with a TV show or something like that, but no iPads, no iPhones. She was so particular about it. And I think at the time, I'm not sure we knew why. It was just sort of an instinct of we think it's bad for the kids. Right. We certainly don't think it's going to help them in any way. So let's not do it without any real rationale behind it. And here I am reading your book with this rationale. Uh, I think a lot of people, you touch on this a little bit, might think initially if they don't read the book, 
hey, didn't we do this already in the 80s and 90s when, mm. you know, shows were getting, you know, violent or video games right. and, and things like that? You know, how is this a- any different? And you talk a lot about that. So what would you say to those folks who, who asked that question? Yeah. And I think that's a great question. And I think that was really what happened. I think those of us who grew up in, well, most of us did, most of us grew up with television. I think the problem was we conflated modern technology and screen time with television. And you know, there's a couple of really significant reasons why it's it's qualitatively different. And I get it. There's always been this sort of the sky is falling with each evolution of technology. You know, I, I wrote about Blow Kids that you know, back in the days of Plato, that Plato thought that the written word was going to be a, a problem, that, you know, writing things down was going to erode our memories. And 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 there's always been a little bit of, you know, we, when we went from radio to television and films and and there was congressional hearings about how Superman was uh, corrosive to the, the, the youth of America. So I do understand that concern that we're not overreacting to things. But what we were seeing was that uh, because primarily of two factors, the the nature of the immersive and interactive aspect of screen time versus the way that television used to be a, a passive viewing experience. So when you and I were growing up and we were, you know, when I was a kid watching, you know, Starsky and Hutch or whatever it was back in the day, I was a passive viewer of a, of a visual medium. Um, now our kids are immersed and interactive in that experience, which makes it much more psychologically impactful on them. And the ubiquity of screens, they're everywhere. They're in our pockets. You and I weren't carrying around our living room TV set in our back pocket, so it wasn't as readily available. So the ubiquity and the immersive interactive nature of this technology makes it much more psychodynamically uh, impactful. Yeah. One of the things I think that uh, was really scary for me as a parent reading in your book, and I, and I want to get into the weeds just for a minute here on, on some mm-hmm. of this, because I think it's important for parents, was what's happening if we could kind of peel back while our kids are playing a game on a phone or a first person shooter mm-hmm. game, and we're measuring the the, the, the dopamine receptors and what mm-hmm. that's doing to their brain. Walk us through that, because I think as a parent, you know, you want to know what's going on in my kid's brain while they're doing that activity, which I think it, to your point, maybe separates or does separate what they're doing now versus what they were doing in the 80s and 90s. Right. So so modern technology by design is made to be much more dopaminergically activating. And what that simply means is it spikes our dopamine much more readily. And as an addiction psychologist, I can tell you that dopamine is the main neurotransmitter involved with any kind of habit forming, habituation, addictive types of behavior. So the more that something spikes our dopamine, the more potentially habit-forming it is, the more potentially addicting it is. And this was shown that there was a really cool study by Dr. Koch back in 1998 in uh, Nature magazine that showed here's how certain things and experiences and, and substances increased our dopamine. And there was uh, food and chocolate raised our dopamine 50%, and um, sex raised our dopamine levels 100%, and cocaine raised them 300%. But back in this 1998 study, they showed that video games, 1998 video games, which were not quite, you know, not quite Pong and, and Ms. Pac-Man, but they weren't Grand Theft Auto and modern uh, experiences either. They raised uh, dopamine levels at the same level of a sexual experience, 100% spike in dopamine. And what that means is that they're so arousing, that they're so spiking of our dopamine that that creates what we call the dopamine reward loop, where we then chase that experience and really become potentially habituated to that. Now, dopamine is a natural neurotransmitter that's been primarily uh, baked into our DNA to incentivize 
eating and procreation, and there was some life-sustaining, species-sustaining benefits to that. But, um, you know, and, and of course, things that feel good, look, you, you and I can watch a baseball game, and it's pleasant, and there's going to be a slight dopamine increase because we're enjoying that. But the intense spike that was happening and the extended um, period of time that people were spending in front of the screens was exacerbating this dopamine effect. I, I like the analogy to, you know, the food to procreation, right? Because, you know, these are intelligent design. We want you to have children. We want you to remember to eat. Um, these are good <laughs> things. They're pleasurable things. That's intelligent design, right, of, uh, of, of a creator. Mm -hmm. Now we talk about video games. You're talking about games on your phone. That is the design by the company, the software designer, the game designer, specifically with the intent in mind to trigger that, meaning it's not an accident, right? You, you, you found that they, this was done on purpose. So the, the gaming industry, companies like the Valve Corporation, social media companies, some of the largest big tech companies use, employ the most, uh, the best educated behavioral psychologists using some of the most sophisticated behavior modification techniques to create habit, to create art. Well, because the, the name of the game is engagement, because engagement drives monetization and it drives their bottom line. So while you know, we could always make the argument that there's always been advertising and there's, there's been jingles and McDonald's always had Happy Meal songs. And um, but this level of, of really insidious and invasive type of behavior modification is 2.0. It's something beyond what we've ever seen before. And, and, and now we have, you know, documentaries like The Social Dilemma, where, you know, when a few years ago, when psychologists and I were saying, hey, wait a second, this is addiction by design. Um, now we've had the curtain pulled back and the playbook has been revealed by some of the insiders, some of the tech people themselves, like Kristen Harris at Google and some of the people who are now uh, Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. They're admitting that this was no happy accident. This was very sophisticated manipulation of, of our whole society. Yeah, absolutely. And I love those examples that you talk about, some of the whistleblowers and, and what they're even saying. Absolutely, we tried to hook the kids to make sure that the dopamine receptors were responding. We want them to be addicted. If they're addicted, they keep playing. If they keep playing, you know, we make money. So I think you do an awesome job of researching that portion of the book. Um, most people, I think intuitively, we all know, even if we're not uh, psychologists, hey, addictions are bad, right? Uh, you talk about what's the impact. So, okay, they're hooking the kids on the video games, on the social media, and there's a there's a price to pay for the child. Tell us about that. Well, we started seeing our mental health metrics really just deteriorating. You know, we started seeing over the last five to ten years record levels of psychiatric uh, numbers. We started seeing so, and this is in 2019, pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, we started seeing record rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, overdose. ADHD, all the all those psychiatric metrics were going through the roof at record rates that we had never seen before. And, and they were correlating, you know, there, there was a very simple equation. The, the more screen time we were using, the more uh, technologically advanced we were getting into society, you know, it's almost like the old one step forward for mankind. Well, it's one step forward for technology, two steps backwards for humanity. And 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 really COVID acted as sort of a, a beta test of that because the COVID COVID was, um, in so many ways, was so devastating, but it actually was a proof of what my hypothesis was, because during COVID, screen time doubled and depression tripled. And so we saw what, what happens when we increase our dependence on screen time. And look, let's face it, we did, perhaps we didn't have a choice, right? We, we had a Zoom with grandma and 
perhaps we had to do remote teaching, although I think you guys did it great in Florida, and I'm a fan of the way it was handled in Florida because I have 15-year-old teenage twin boys myself, and I'm in the fight as well as a parent. Um, we saw when we increased, when we increased the amplitude of screen time, it really blew up our metrics. So now we had uh, suicide rates skyrocketed even more than they were in 2019. We saw overdoses have gone through the roof. And so these are all interrelated phenomenon because now if you have an, a screen addicted population, you've got a much more, well, you're sedentary screen staring and isolated. And the two main drivers of our mental health are being socially connected, face-to-face socially connected, and being physically active. That's how we were evolutionarily designed to be. We were meant to be a community. We were meant to be face-to-face, and we were meant to be physically active. And now when you look at what screen time does, is it isolates us and it makes us sedentary. And those two things were one of the biggest drivers of um, of the bad things that we're seeing. Not, and that's not even factoring the content. That's just the the device itself. Now, when you start factoring in the content, and and as I said before, some of the um, you know some of the toxic influencer content, some of the gaming violence, all this stuff that's desensitizing and harming our kids, that's really polluting their minds in ways that's really toxic. Just the device itself, as McLuhan had said, the medium is the message. The medium itself is harmful, and and the the evil part, the part that I think is really evil, is now we know through. Francis Hogan and the Facebook whistleblower, the quote unquote Facebook whistleblower, they've known that this is harmful. The big tech is, is, is aware through their own internal research that this is not only habit forming, but harmful, potentially uh, fatal to some of our kids because it increased suicide rates in teenage girls. It increased uh, incidents of eating disorders, which is very fatal. And they didn't care. They kept the algorithms intact. They didn't adjust the algorithms to make them less toxic and that's what i think is really a curse on all their heads for not really caring uh more about our safety our children's safety and caring more about their bottom line now you you were very clear on that in 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 your book about look if the choice is going to be between uh the profitability of the algorithm and your child's mental health your child's mental health is going to lose and i and i think that's important for us to dwell on for a second as parents that you know when we give our kids a device that there are folks there who have a, a major motive that is in their best interest, um, but could have wildly terrible consequences for our kids. You, you do a, um, a really amazing job of, of kind of sprinkling in these these stories and vignettes throughout the book to really illustrate the point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I took one of them with my seven year old because we're always saying no to video games and you know game they don't have game consoles and things like that. Their friends do. And you know they ask about them and I, you know, I kind of used it, what I thought was the most age appropriate one for for him to ex- to express this is why you know here's a kid who thought he was still stuck right. in the video game he was living in in the real world but thought the real world was a was a video game because of the, the mental issues that he had so you know share with us sort of and it can be an extreme example because i think it's it's it is important i think to understand how bad this can get but an example of something that you've seen in your practice or your experience with these kids who you know, they get hooked, the dopamine receptors get them, and then they get sucked mm-hmm. into the, the the screen or into the video game. Yeah. And, and you know, just to go back to the point, the three-step play of big tech is, number one, create habituation. And, and habituation is almost like if you visualize it like a boxer in a boxing ring, that's, that's softening up, that's body blows, body blows, body blows. And once you've got enough body blows, now you're, now you're vulnerable for the knockout punch, right? You know, I'm thinking about Muhammad Ali and Ropa Dopa. Now, and so the body blows are really some of these shaping influences that we're seeing and some of these really extreme like 
you know, so I'll give you a couple of examples since you asked. We've seen cases of reality blurring, psychosis, where young people's sense of reality was entirely blurred. And essentially, I call it they were in the matrix. And that's how I first got into this, Chris. You know, as I write in Glow Kids 13, 14 years ago now, I worked with a young 16-year-old boy who had no history of mental illness, who had been gaming so much, who had been playing World of Warcraft 12 to 13 hours a day, that essentially reality had blurred for him. He didn't know where the where the game ended and where reality began. And so there's been a lot of documented cases now of, of this effect. When you think about it, our kids are developing their sense of what, what we call as psychologists reality testing during very pivotal ages of their development. So a child is only beginning to learn that what's real and what's not real during very key stages. But if they're immersed in this reality blurring, hyper immersive game, or now we have virtual reality, which is intended to blur reality, these children are going to have a very challenging time of delineating what's what. And so we have video game psychosis at the one end of the spectrum. We have information overload types of experiences. I worked with them um, during the 2016 campaign. Uh, you might remember there was the Trump Tower climber. There was a young man that drove to Trump Tower, and he just used his Spider-Man suction cups to start climbing the tower. His family, and that's their public, you know, had reached out to me. This young man was a, a Maryland military family, actually. He was just, um, he was a, a political junk. He would just read, you know, political story after political story, but he got so down the rabbit hole of he wouldn't, you know, it's called hyperlink surfing, where you just, you know, once you read one interesting story, then you hyperlink to the next. If you do that to the point of sleep deprivation, where you're up for two or three days and you're just so in the rabbit hole, he had a psychotic break where he just got it in his head that he had to go to Trump Tower and meet Mr. Trump at, the, at that point. He wasn't President Trump yet. Um, I recently, in your state, testified in a capital murder case in Palm Beach County uh, of a young man who was a white suburban Palm Beach County kid who, by all accounts, had been a gentle kid, nice kid, sweet kid, who was addicted to YouTube. And he would just watch YouTube and and because of the way the algorithm works and the algorithm is soulless. The algorithm doesn't differentiate between content. It just sniffs out what you or I might be interested in and through predictive algorithms. Then they feed us more of the content that they think we want to see in what's called an extremification loop because that, you know, they will get bored if they don't, you know, amp up the intensity. So this young man who had been uh, politically progressive as a 16 year old, eventually saw a quick YouTube video about the Holocaust. And because he watched that, the algorithm started sending him Holocaust denying videos. And then they started sending him white supremacy videos. So he quickly became a white supremacist within about four or five months. But the story didn't end there because it, this was such a perfect example of how our young people can be in our current society. They're so empty. So many of the young people I work with, they don't have a sense of intrinsic identity or value or who they are. And so they're so um, impressionable to these outside forces. So then he eventually watched a video about ISIS. Well, no, initially he watched a video about Assad in Syria. And because he watched that, he got, you know, the, the algorithms targeted him as being vulnerable to Islamic content. And within two or three months, he became an ISIS warrior, converted to Islam, and committed one of the most horrific murders. Um, it was... You know, the crime scene photos were, were um, horrible. He essentially decapitated a 13-year-old boy and tried to kill three other people, all in this psychotic, ideological brainwashing 
And the defense was an insanity defense due to YouTube brainwashing. And, and it was a, a, an extreme example of how, it, interestingly, Chris, I want to back up. I met him. I had to assess him in prison. I went down to Palm Beach after he had been out of jail for, uh, I mean, I'm out of uh, away from screens for almost a year at that point, nine months, 10 months, 11 months. And he was back to being a sweet kid. And it was really interesting to see because I was expecting to meet a sociopath, uh, a young Charles Manson type. And it was, I mean, it was really unsettling to me. I went home and told my wife, you know, this was unsettling because had we not known, I would have hired this kid to be a babysitter for our kids because he was so polite and composed. And yet he committed the, this most horrific of crimes after he had been brainwashed by this, by the content that he saw online. I, I actually read that a specific example to my wife. Um, because I think this the the algorithm and the extremist loop that you talked about is hey if, if the goal of the algorithm is to get you to get you to keep watching well I can't give you the exact same thing I need to I need to up the ante right like an addiction like a drug hey this drug's no longer going to get you high anymore I need to give you more uh, otherwise you stop coming back and I think it was a great example it also got me thinking and I'm sure a lot of people who are li- who would listen to this would think to myself well it kind of reminds us of social media. Social media does that same thing. You know, let me give you more of the same content that you agree with, maybe up the ante a little bit, Mm -hmm. which leads me into your new book that you have coming out, uh, Digital Madness. And uh, I was you were were generous enough to send me an advanced copy so I could so I could read it before this podcast. These two books uh, build on each other. I'd recommend both of them. Digital Madness seems like the kind of inevitable follow up to Glow Kids. So tell us what is Digital Madness and why you decided to do that book next. Yeah, really, Chris, it was just as I mentioned before, I was watching the sort of the evolution of, okay, now we've accepted that we've been, you know, we've been seduced by technology. We're, we're a tech-saturated society, all of us, the adults, the kids. How is it affecting, the, you know, what's a 30,000-foot view of how it's affecting our society, our politics, our mental health in a, in a larger sense? And social media now is the dominant force. Um, you know, we're social animals, essentially. And now our social milieu, our social landscape is digital, um, certainly for our young people. You know, if you're 30 and under, your digital world is the most shaping influence. You know, when I was a professor, I taught human behavior in the social environment was a core required class for to get your, your master's degree. And our social behavior in the, in our, our behavior in the social environment now is in the digital social environment. And so we're starting to see these shaping influences. And because of the, the DNA of social media to create engagement, we're seeing that the most over-the-top types of behavior is what attracts the coin of the realm. What's the coin of the realm in social media? It's followers and views. And, and so a nuanced, thoughtful speaker is going to get two views, some over-the-top extremist, um, some performative influencer, and 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 what I write about a lot now that's a really fascinating phenomenon is so we have the influencer effect of the kardashians and that sort of thing that are you know they're influencing our kids with toxic values right in terms of materialism and 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 the just just the garbage that the nonsense that they put out the kylie jenners of the world they have more influence on our kids perhaps than you know than we do at this point but then you now you have psychiatric influencers who are these performative over the top whether they have borderline personality disorder or dissociative identity disorder, which we used to call multiple personality disorder, uh, gender dysphoria. You have these really um, 
super popular influencers on TikTok who are get, getting hundreds of millions of views. And we're seeing that their followers are now beginning to mimic some of their behaviors, some of their psychiatric behaviors. So we have the TikTok Tourette's phenomenon where thousands of teenage girls across the country in the last two years started having really um, overt, you know, they had the arm twitching Tourette's. And, and that shouldn't happen because typically Tourette's is three to one male to female. Typically Tourette's is diagnosed in early childhood. And all of a sudden these teenage girls started having Tourette's syndrome. And the pediatricians drilled down at what was going on and they found out that they were following this handful of TikTok influencers who had performative Tourette's. I don't even think they had Tourette's. I think they were just acting. And the one was British. The one influencer who had gotten hundreds of millions of views had a British accent and her followers started having verbal tic Tourette's with a British accent. So it was clear that this was a social contagion. And that's what I write about in the new book that we're creating that now social media is acting as an invasive virus and we're creating a social contagion effect where we're not just shaping kids' values, their behaviors, we're creating an emptiness of sense of purpose because let's face it, these are these uh, these values that you know are being shared online, they're the most superficial and empty. Uh, and so our kids are going through a crisis of purpose and meaning and, and finding the solution in their, in their digital heroes. I thought it was interesting uh, when you talked about the actual people doing the influence, the influencers. Traditionally, we would think of that as, well, you get more followers, you get more value, you can do different things. You actually make a comment, which I think is spot on, which is some of these folks who are the most bombastic, creating the most content, are the most likely to be the mentally ill. Right. They're the most of the, their, their behaviors, the most extreme. The, look, the, the dissociative disorder influencers, the popcorn moment that their followers tune into to watch what's called switching when they switch from one alter identity to the other. So, so now you have young people who are claiming to have over 100 identities. Now, in real dissociative disorder, and that's a thing, you know, typically it's somebody was sexually abused as a child and they can't handle that reality. So they create maybe an alter persona or two. It used to be four or five alter identities was not uncommon. It's a very rare disorder. Multiple personality disorder was not a common thing. And now it's become a common thing with, with dozens and dozens and dozens of identities that cover the whole LGBTQI spectrum. And, and the part that the people tune in for is this really highly dramatic and histrionic switching where you, when the host, and they call them the host body, goes from the gay black woman to the white straight boy to the older, you know, whatever the identity is. And, and, you know, and I've worked with real DID. This isn't real DID. This is, um, performative most. I'm, I'm not going to say all of it's not because I hate to use absolute sure, terms. Yeah. But the vast majority of this, this behavior and this, this content seems to be, um, viewer driven. The, the second, Thing that I think is a major impact that's happening to this is on a societal level is you know we're seeing that we're on fire politically both left and right. This is your world, you know. I'm not yeah, sure. I'm not sharing a news flash with you yeah. how divided <laughs> we are, and I'm to some degree I'm blaming how social media has driven the way that I think the polarity chasm that's formed has been as a result of algorithms that are really sort of amplifying extremes in both sides of the political spectrum the mental health. And, and what I'm really hypothesizing is that now young people are being shaped, that the, the architecture of their brains are being shaped to such that they can't uh, understand things in nuance or grays. 
that they can only see things in black and white because that's where the algorithms live in the extreme black and white. And so to have a nuanced discussion with someone um, as we used to at university, you know, you and I went to college and we used to debate people on other sides of the aisle and could have polite, informed conversations. Now you have such a, a pathology that people get are getting triggered, right? And people are getting highly emotionally reactive. So black and white thinking is a symptom of a type of pathology. There's a disorder called borderline personality disorder where our young people are getting increasingly, increasingly uh, vulnerable, fragile, reactive. And I'm thinking, it looks to me like social media is what's tilling the soil for that kind of reactivity. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, this is one, one part of the book where I thought really blew my mind um, because it organized a thought process based on clinical diagnosis that I don't think, certainly I'm not capable uh, of putting together. But and what I want to make sure I had it right when I read it. So my, my understanding of reading it was social media, this digital madness is creating these binary choices like dislike, happy, angry, no middle ground. Uh, no, I don't know, no nuance to that. Mm -hmm. That binary choice is shifting how we sort information in our daily lives into binary choices as opposed to gray or opposed to nuance, which to your point is a symptom of, I think if I understand the book, borderline personality disorder. So you have people walking around who otherwise would not have any sort of clinical diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, but it's it's sort of uh, manifesting itself in their behavior. Is that is that a fair sort of summary of that? You summarized it by which I had it on tape. That was a perfect synopsis of it. And, and you know, I've just written an op-ed for the New York Post. And, and what I'm also saying is that it, it's not genuine borderline personality disorder because the real deal is a really lifelong disorder that takes many years of treatment to to get better, um, what we're seeing is, let's call it pseudo-borderline personality disorder on a societal level. The society has now sort of adopted the, these clinical criteria. And so I have a clinic in Austin where we treat young adults and, and at least half of our female clients have borderline personality disorder, or they come in diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And in my clinic, we don't allow technology or social media or anything. A certain percentage I would say at least half of those who come in with a BPD, borderline diagnosis, once they're removed from social media, within about three or four weeks, the symptoms go away, which to me tells me they didn't really have borderline personality disorder. They had pseudo BPD that was being inflamed or um, the presentation was made to look like that because of they were fully immersed in social media. And the ones that are, who really have BPD, they still have the symptoms once you take away the devices but it's certainly creating the um, the presentation of that for a large part of our society. You know, that there, there's a reason why we all have our hair on fire right now. And the divide is so wide in ways that, you know, I haven't seen in my lifetime. Yeah. Well, I'll characterize it this way. I, you know, I wouldn't have you do that as a clinical psychologist. It's making us crazy. I mean, it's, it's making us crazy as a society. And I, you know, I was thinking about this because you, you know, uh, you talk about in the book, this idea of, hey, um, you know, the, we're, we come from the Adam Walsh generation. So, you know, helicopter parents don't play in the road, don't walk down the street, even though those are all the things that we did when, when we mm -hmm. were kids. And the, and the negative impact that, that has on our children, which we'll leave first, maybe a separate conversation. But what's interesting about it, and you make this point, is we'll tell you not to play in the street, which everyone did and was fine. And we're living in the time in this country where it's the safest it's ever been. But I will hand you a phone that has social media on it with the potential of literally changing the way that your brain works 
and putting you in a situation where you may develop a, a mental health disorder that you otherwise wouldn't have had. So I, I, I had this conversation, uh, Dr. Darris, with a friend of mine. I was calling him to talk to him through these topics. And he's got a son who's older than mine in uh, middle school, middle school age, eighth grade. And he's got a phone. And I said, hey, like, are you worried about this? And he's like, yeah, I'm worried about it. It's like the thing I worry about the most. It's the, my biggest po- point of contention with my child. But what do I do now? You know, he's got this thing. He's in the social media. We know the risks based on your book. What's your advice to parents who find themselves in a situation? I'm, I'm sort of lucky, right? I'm getting this in the beginning of where I can, we stopped it. We never did it. So it's a little bit easier. But if you're already in the game, they've formed this addiction. They think it's their entire social world. What, what have you told parents in your practice on how to deal with it? Yeah, I wish I could tell you that there was a simple solution to that. I wish I could tell you, well, here are the three steps. Um, unfortunately, the best thing to do is what you and I try to do with our kids and delay, delay, delay. And, and really, because we have to allow our children's social, emotional, and, and brain development to kind of go a little bit further along before we give them car keys. We don't give seven and eight-year-olds car keys for a reason. And so it's a much easier to address these issues on the prevention side of the equation rather than now the horse has left the barn. Now some, a kid is addicted or they're fully, their whole identity is based on this. And now how do you kind of pull them out? And that's a lot harder. I mean, I've got, like I said, I've got a treatment program that works with young people residentially to try to unring that bell, but it's a hard bell to unring once it's rung. In, in a certain way, more difficult than substance addiction because you know, so somebody can live a very happy, meaningful life off of drugs and alcohol. But now if you've crossed that line into digital habituation or dependence and we're living in the digital age, you know, abstinence becomes not an antidote and it becomes hard to dance with something that you've developed an unhealthy relationship with. So in that sense, it's similar to how you would treat an eating disorder. Um, a person that has disordered eating has to do quite a bit of work to then re develop a healthy sense of self and a healthy uh, identity to then develop a healthy relationship with the problem substance, in their case, food. So, you know, if you see that your child is getting close to the line or across the line of having a problem, well, number one, getting some professional help involved, but you have to take away the toxin. You know, whether that means limiting, limiting it or eliminating it, it, it depends on the severity of the issue. There's a certain line in the continuum that if you've crossed that line, the digital detox is the only solution where, you know, you, you don't you don't just have the alcoholic have two martinis for lunch and you try to moderate their drinking. There's a certain line that has to be abstinence. But there's a point before you get to that where you can. And, and what I write about in Digital Madness, where we can really fortify our kids to really be more immunized. I talk a lot about having a healthy psychological immune system. So we can immunize our kids by really developing their sense of, 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 of psychological strength. And that's not by helicopter parenting. That's by teaching our kids how to be resilient, how to develop grit, how to read, how to develop critical thinking skills. That's the antidote. A kid that has the ability to critically think, which is not taught in public schools anymore. I'm a big believer in the classical philosophy. I've been trained in the ancients. And I believe that the antidote to the, to the modern is the ancient. Um, why aren't we teaching civics and ethics and and certain um, principles that are going to help immunize our kids to the gravitational pull of some of these new toxins? That's part of the preventative solution that we need to kind of get back to is make our kids healthier and more resilient psychologically. 
First of all, I'm going to I'm going to take that from you. The uh, you know the antidote to the modern is the ancient. So I'll try to give you credit if I say it. But I think it's a powerful statement to to really think about immunizing our kids. I think parents are used to that concept, right? They're taking their kids to get you know immunization and all those things, so they're used to that. And maybe there's a bit of a not an intuitive nature. Meaning, you talked about helicopter parents. Hey, letting your kid, you letting go, is a way for your child to build a psychological immune system and also teaching them critical thinking. I, I think that's, you know, that's really, really important. Um, you know, one thing I liked in your book is you sort of equated the scale down, meaning, hey, if your kid needs to get off video games or in the case of digital madness, you know, scaling off social media, you likened it to a methadone clinic. Hey, like you don't get the person cold turkey off the drugs. That's not going to work. You need to scale down to a you know either a non-existent or to a reasonable level that can be then maintained. Uh, so that that's part of the advice that you'd give parents. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Wean them down when if they haven't crossed that line. By the way, I want to go back to the immune system thing uh, because I think it's it is really important. One of the things that I think you're passionate about reading is part of the immunization process. Look, we know when we're raising kids, if we bubble wrap our kids and we don't let them play on the floor and we we're going to protect them from germs they're not going to develop a healthy uh, biological immune system kids have to be exposed to germs and bacteria because that put, builds up their natural resistance it's the same way with some of these other things that we're talking about we have to develop our kids healthy psychological immune system and really fascinating research has come out about the impacts of reading right and and and, and the effects of screen time on reading so um in seven eight years ago there was the um the Journal of Psychological Science, which is a peer-reviewed journal, had a really fascinating study. 17,000 people were measured, were studied from birth to age 50. And they found that the competency, the reading level competency at age seven was the best predictor for lifelong success in a person's life. And then the second study by the OECD, the uh, Organization of Economic Development, found that the love of reading at age 15 was the biggest predictor for lifelong success and social emotional development. So I want to hold those two thoughts. So reading competence and love of reading were the biggest predictors of, of lifelong success. And then the other study comes out that says kids who are on screens the most can't stand reading. Uh, reading is too boring. They're three times less likely to read. So now we know that reading is this critically important thing in our kids' lives. And now we have this device which makes them hate reading. And, and, and if you look, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why screen time makes reading obsolete. It's boring. If you've raised a kid that's been blowing up universes in you know, one of their video games, League of Legends or whatever it is, and then you ask them to sit down and read a book, they haven't developed the, not only the architecture of their brains, but now you've made that experience so much less stimulating to them. So now they're habituated to stimulation. That's the ADHD. That's what's driving that. There was an NYU professor, Neil Postman, back in the 80s, who wrote a really great book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he said, when we switch from a reading culture, and now that we're switching to a visual medium culture, and he was talking about television, 1985 television, Dynasty, Magnum PI, that we're going to become a culture of, uh, he equated it to Soma and Brave New World, that it's going to just make us uh, infotainment pleasure seekers, and that reading creates a very critical uh, dialectic within our minds that makes us critically think that we have to analyze what we read. And then we have to visualize what we read in our minds. If I'm getting the content visually, I no longer have to create the visualization in my mind because it's being pre-baked 
for me. So we're really stunting the development of our children if we rely on visual medium for the way that they develop and learn. So the best thing that we can do, and I try to make my sons voracious readers when they were, it was the best thing that kept them away from video games. They played sports and they read. Those were the two things that I try to do with my own kids. And it seems to have worked so far. You know, they're 15, who knows? And, and I just can't harp on that part enough because if we're trying to keep our kids away from the devices, have them fall in love with reading and, and, and the exploratory worlds that those open up in their own imagination and in their own minds, rather than the pre-baked imagination of some game designer or social media influencers or all those other toxins that are out there. Yeah, I well, you're, you're speaking my my language here. Um, you know, I know as you know, Dr. Kateris, we uh, we started the New World's Reading Initiative uh, during my time as Speaker. The House led on it, and it's the largest home book delivery program uh, to struggling readers of any of any state in, in America. Also, wraparound services for parents to help them engage in their children's uh, active reading to make sure they can read on grade level by the time they're third grade. But I I love this idea. Now you've given me something else that I didn't have before, which is not only is reading an asset to their lives, their pathways to prosperity, um, you know, the fact that they're going to more likely to uh, to be employed, have successful lives and relationships. But now you're, you're also telling me that reading is essentially a shield or at least a partial shield to a lot of the other things that are going on in the world, whether that's, you know, phones, whether that's digital, d- digital devices or social media. If we can get them to love this, we can get them to love a book love reading, love the adventure and the stories, get their dopamine hits from an active story rather than a first-person shooter game or from social media, we have a better chance at protecting our kids. A hundred percent. And the problem is if you do it the other way, if you drop the Chromebook or the tablet into the crib at age two, you'll never get them to be a, a, a passionate reader. It, it'll be too late. You, you will have queered it before it ever happened because they will have fallen in love with the, the bells and whistles of the screen. Once that kid becomes screen engaged, reading becomes obsolete. Well, we're going to put you in a commercial for the New World's Reading Initiative so tell parents. But I, uh, I'll tell you what, these two books that you've done, uh, just, to, just to summarize, you know, The Glow Kids, uh, I think is one of the most, uh, the biggest threats to our children that exist uh, for parents and for kids today. I'd encourage people to read that as a way to be aware of the threats that are lurking behind the screens for your kids and the things that have gone into to, to getting to your children, including the uh, the tracking of their of their information, their data, which is something else we've worked on here in the state of Florida, uh, the pushbacks that we've done in big tech, and then your book uh, in digital madness, which I think to your point about binary thinking is probably one of the largest threats to the idea of Western democracy uh, that we face today is, is social media. So Dr. Kaderis, thank you uh, for the work that you're doing. Thanks for uh, putting these books out there. I think, uh, I hope every reads them uh, because I do think if that happens, we'll, we'll have a, a chance at uh, protecting our kids and, and taking our country back. And Chris, thank you for all the work that you're, you've been doing and for having me on as a guest. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for tuning in to this week's episode of Red, White and Blue. I know we're all worried as parents about all kinds of things that impact our children. One of those things is screens. I encourage you to pick up a copy of Glow Kids to read about it, to understand the impacts and practical ways that you as a parent can help protect your kids. I also encourage you, those of you who are worried about the toxic impacts on on ourselves as individuals or on a society of social media, to pick up Dr. Kaderis' book, Digital Madness. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Until next time, this is Chris Browse signing off.